Good morning. Good morning. I just need to make sure that you are awake to pay attention to God's word because it underpins how we function as a church and how we should live as individuals. It's the supreme authority. Even in 2 Peter 1, the apostle refers to his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration when he actually heard God speak in commendation of his son, Jesus Christ. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. But Peter goes on to say, we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place and we are living in a world of darkness until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So let's read Colossians 1 this morning about the preeminence of the Lord Jesus. If you haven't a Bible with you, there are some on the windowsill. And if you don't own one, take it home free of charge. When I've finished reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And you will respond knowing that you are in a privileged position that many of our family in Christ are not of being able to hear God's word read publicly. And you will say, Colossians 1, he, verse 15, he, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your living word. We thank you for this reminder that though Jesus was meek and lowly, he is also the preeminent one. There is no name given among heaven that is greater than the name of Jesus Christ, and it is through him 
that we are saved and we are standing here this morning. So Father, we just pray that as Ty comes and opens your word, may you by your Holy Spirit open our eyes to catch a glimpse of who exactly, one dimension, some dimensions of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who is Lord, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and one day all of creation will acknowledge that that's who he is. So may your spirit move through Ty and may he move through us that we will hear and see something of the Lord Jesus in all of his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Barbara. Um, this morning we have uh, Ty Neal, who's pastor at Grace Point Church in Las Vegas. He's going to come and preach for us. So do we want to welcome him up here, please? Just give him a welcome. Uh, Ty, Ty is here uh, with five other uh, people from uh, Grace Point Church in Las Vegas. Do you just want to stand up so we can say hello? Don't worry, Rolly, we won't make you stand again. You, you, you can relax now. Um, Grace Point Church have been uh, partnering with us for, I don't know, six years. I, I think since even before we planted this church, around about the time, it's been a long time, they've been walking this journey with us. They've been faithful to us in praying for us, in loving us, in financially supporting the, the mission work here and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and we're really, really thankful for them. I love how Paul, when he's writing to the various churches in the New Testament, he he never really says uh, ministry partners, or he never really says, uh, you know, like, thank you that you uh, support me. He's like, no, we are partners in the gospel, and I'm thankful for you when I remember you. That's the relationship we have, and we're grateful for you guys coming all this way to spend a few days with us and to be here on our fifth birthday. Um, Ty, I'm going to just pray for you. For again. sure. I know Barbara did, and her prayers are more listened to than mine, for sure. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Uh, I'm going to pray for you, and then uh, hand over to you. Uh, Father God, we want to thank you for Ty. We want to thank you for Grace Point Church. We want to thank you for the souls that will be in heaven because of his ministry and because of the ministry of that church. Uh, Father, I just pray now for your anointing on him. Holy Spirit, speak freely through him to our souls. Uh, we are hungry. We need to hear from you. We are needy. Um, Father, I pray that every word he speaks would be the word of God this morning. Um, strengthen him now. Encourage him now. And ready our hearts to hear from the risen, risen Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Good morning, uh, Miss Barbara. What are you doing on Sundays? Do you, we, 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 we'd love you to come read scripture and pray for us, uh, or just come read me a bedtime story. It's wonderful. <laughs> Your voice is just. Hey, uh, happy fifth birthday! Way to go! Yeah. Uh, and, and in a time that's increasingly uh, getting more difficult to plant churches and to be uh, sustaining established churches. Uh, I, I thank God for you because uh, we watch churches, especially in America, but I'm sure all around the world, closing doors, and yet you guys are opening doors, and so I'm just thankful for God for each and every one of you. Um, I, I love what Andrew, Pastor Andrew told me um, the other day. He said at your first gathering, I have nothing for you but Jesus, and so I, I, I don't want to disappoint you today. Today, I have nothing for you but Jesus. Uh, but if you have Jesus, then you've got everything. And so uh, I'm just excited to, to worship over the word with you this morning. Um, you ever been in one of those conversations with someone, perhaps as a friend, or perhaps it's a spouse, or a child, or, or a boss, or something, and they make these statements? 
uh, they say things like this, like, you are always late, which um, I've heard of Irish people, you are always late. Is this true? This is what Andrew told me. I don't know. Or, or like when your kids, you know, they'll look at you and say, you never play with me. And you're like, I was just playing with you a few minutes. But they're like, no, you never play with me. Or uh, someone looks at you and says, you're always on your phone. Or you eat uh, the same thing each and every day. Or you get defensive every time someone mentions this. You're, you ever had someone make one of those statements before? You know what you call those statements? The truth. Just kidding. No. <laughs> you know what you call those statements? You call those global statements or uh, a universal statement. They're basically exaggerations. Uh, because honestly, as human beings, none of us are consistent enough to do the th- same thing over and over always or to not do something over and over to never. Uh, but it's not so when it comes to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a global statement. Jesus uh, can back up all the universal statements of him in the Bible. Jesus will never let us down. Jesus will never leave us. Jesus always comes through on his promises. You can count on Jesus every day, every moment. He's always the same yesterday, today, forever. And Jesus will change everything in your life and ultimately everything in this world. Why? Because Jesus can back it up. He can. How does he back it up? He backs it up with his life, his perfect life on our behalf. He backs it up with his death. He died for us. He backs it up with a resurrection. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. He backs it up by the ascension, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he backs it up when he comes and returns to renew all things. We can trust Jesus in that. And so I have a statement for us today, and I'll I'll come back to the statement over and over. And and maybe you want to write this down. But the statement is this. Jesus is first and everything. Meaning, Jesus should be the priority of all of our lives. He should take first place in everything that we do. And in in everything that we do, Jesus is everything. Nothing is is excluded whatsoever. Now, if we're not careful, we'll make this statement. We'll believe this statement. But yet, it just kind of becomes an exaggeration of our lips, but not the exaggeration of our lives. Imagine what it would look like if we were to really live this out. Like, no, Jesus is my priority. Imagine what it would look like in our lives, in our relationships, in our parenting, in our marriages, in our church, in our mission, in our workplaces, in the world around us, if we really lived as if Jesus is first and that he is everything. Now, why would we want to do that? Well, that's where we're going to be in first. Uh, we're going to be in Colossians 1. And I, I want to reread it one more time. And I, I don't think it hurts to read it another time aloud. But I really want to put emphasis on who this text is speaking of. Uh, I, I want to read through this uh, 15 through 20 and, and pay attention to the he and him. That's Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in Him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's a lot of he in there. That's, that, is, that is the most concentrated Jesus text, I believe. Lots of Jesus in there. So that's why we say that Jesus is first and in everything. Now, I know it's a big, bold statement, but I believe that's the summarization of our text today. And it's interesting about this letter. It was written by Paul uh, to the church in Colossae. 
And, and probably this is the only thing left in Colossae. A little bit of history will tell you they had an earthquake around 60 AD, and they never really rebuilt the city. And that's probably why Jesus doesn't mention uh, Colossae in the book of Revelation when he is starting to assess the seven churches there. Uh, but if, what we know about Colossae is it's a Roman providence. If it's a Roman providence, it's ruled by Caesar. And if Caesar is ruling, then uh, everyone is bowing a knee to Caesar. They are just supposed to uh, pay honor and respect and almost glory to Caesar. Now, most people uh, were taught to believe or forced to believe that Caesar was a god among them. Uh, one writer about Caesar his, Caesar, his name was Horace, he said this about Caesar. He says, Caesar brought back fertile crops to the fields and wiped away our sins and revived the ancient virtues. And so basically, Caesar was promising to the people, he promised peace, provisions, and forgiveness. And so it was encouraged, I would say even mandated, that every person in a Roman providence must bend there now and put Caesar first and in everything in their life. Why? Because he's the one taking care of you. He's the one going to provide for you. He is the one that's going to forgive you. He's the one that is going to care for you. And so when Paul writes this letter to the church of Colossae, it is scandalous for him to say that, no, you put Jesus first. I mean, it's so scandalous to say Jesus is Lord because when, in that time period, when you said Jesus is Lord, you're basically saying Caesar is not. And like, it's, it may be easy for us to utter those words right now, but if you say that back then, you will be either imprisoned or you will be put to death. And so I love Paul's boldness empowered by the, and inspired by the Holy Spirit here. But here's the thing about Caesar. Caesar can't back it up. Caesar can't provide on this, prop, on this promise. So now as we read this text and we kind of walk through this, we have to wonder why. Why would Christians put themselves out there and reject Caesar as Lord and make Jesus their Lord? Why would they reject the Roman Empire and want to pursue uh, the kingdom of God? And the reason is because we see in our text today that Jesus can back up everything that he says. And so I want to go through this text and I want to show you how Jesus is first and everything. And I want, I want to kind of do it in three layers. Uh, so there's three points to this. Point number one, or layer number one, we're going to say that Jesus is the God of creation. Number one, Jesus is the God of creation. Look at verse 15. It says, he, who's the he in the text? Starts with J, ends with Jesus. His name is? Okay, cool. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Um, this is originally written in the Greek, and the Greek uh, meaning of the word all is? You got this. Come on. It, it is? It's all, right? And so he's the firstborn of all creation. But before that, it begins with this line. It says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? Um, I, I live in North Las Vegas, and we have our church there, a building, and we also have our uh, offices there. So I've got a little office, and inside of my office, do you guys have Ikea here? Okay, cool. Ikea's everywhere. And some of you were really smiling when I said Ikea, like, oh, I love Ikea. I've seen your furniture. It's Ikea, isn't it? Uh, okay, cool. Uh, so in, in my office, I, have a, um, I got it from Ikea. There's like wires hanging on my wall, and they've got the little clamps on it, and I, I put a lot of pictures on it. Some of you have that. As, you're, you're like, yeah, I've got that. Cool. Uh, and so uh, on those, those pictures are pictures of my family. I've got four children. I have four grandchildren. Uh, I, oh, and I have a wife. It's great. Uh, I <laughs> got that backwards. Uh, maybe. Uh, anyway, if you were to come into my office and saw a picture of my wife and you were to take it down and you were to spit on it and you were to crinkle it up and you were to throw it down on the, on the floor and if you were to stomp on it right there, would I be happy or would I be mad? I would be, I'd be very mad. 
But you were like, look, I didn't do anything to her. I just did to an image of her. This is this image of her. It didn't hurt her. It just, just you know, ruined your picture. Oh, no, no, no. I would be mad. Why? Because that picture represents her. That picture reminds me of her. And so I'd probably offer you the right hand of fellowship, and then we'd move on from there. Uh, but why is that? Because an image is representing something. Let, let, me, let me try it this way. Um, think of someone you love outside of Jesus the most. What just happened in your mind? An image popped up, right? You, you saw their face in their mind's eye. So you, you see that. And so an image is very important. Now, the Bible teaches us that God is spirit. And so God is somewhat invisible. What Paul is saying here is this. When you see Jesus, who do you see? You, you, see, you see God. Uh, let me try it another way. Um, when you look in the Gospels, um, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, I'm sorry, in the Gospel of John, uh, Philip, uh, one of the disciples, have this conversation with Jesus. And Philip's like, curious, like, hey, we want to see the Father. And look what he says in John 14, 9. I'll have it on the screen up there for you. It says, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Now he's asking to see the Father. Whoever has seen me, that being Jesus, has seen who? The Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. So Jesus is the image of God. More than just a picture, he is God with us. Go back to Colossians 1.15. At the end of it says, he's the firstborn of all creation. This does not mean, this does not mean that Jesus was created. Jesus was not created. He has always existed. He is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But what Paul has in mind here, though, is that uh, Jesus had the rights and privileges of the firstborn son, especially in a monarchy that would rule and have ruling sovereignty and authority. So Paul's firstborn had specific meaning in that day. It described the rights associated with being the main inheritor of a family's wealth. Paul's saying that Jesus is the inheritor of creation by rights. So what is Jesus' relationship with creation then? Go to the next verse, verse 16. It says, for by him, who's the him in the text? Okay. For by him, all things were created. Who created all things? In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, so make sure we understand all things, were created through him and for him. Paul's saying that Christ is the agent by and through whom all things were created. So it is clear that firstborn of all creation cannot mean the first person to be created, but some, someone singularly supreme, meaning preeminence, that Jesus is supreme. Or to put it another way, Jesus is supreme over all of creation, the firstborn over all of creation. Jesus is the creator. Um, think back in your Bible you go all the way back to Genesis, what are the first four words of the Bible? What are the first four words? You can say it out loud. In the beginning, God. And so as you keep reading on that, what did God do in the beginning? He, he created. And how did he create? Spoke. And he created something out of what? Right? Now, think about John chapter 1. What does it say in the beginning of John chapter 1? In the beginning was the... Who's the word? Okay. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So the word is Jesus. Now Paul continues to give his clarity and states that by Jesus, the word, God, all was created, and all was created for him. 
Jesus did not come into existence when he was first born of the Virgin Mary. He was the agent of creation through whom God made heaven and earth. Why is this important to us? I can tell you one reason. As a creator, you have power. God has power. He created something out of nothing. What can you create out of nothing? Right? So even everything we have, take a big deep breath. Who gave that to you? Right. And so he, he is powerful. He created something out of nothing. What was created by Jesus? It says in the text, all things, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, power rulers and all things. One more thing about being the creator, the creator has authority to define his creation. And so when he is the creator, that means he has the authority to tell creation what creation is. This is very important. Uh, let's imagine that you are a painter. Any, anyone here a painter, artist of some sorts? Anybody? Just give me a little high sign. Okay, cool. Uh, I am not. Don't have a, uh, an artistic bone in my body. But imagine if I painted a picture of a dog. I said, hey, this is a picture of a dog. And it was like, you know, recognizable enough, like, hey, yeah, that's a dog. But you said, no, to me, that is, you know, man's existential quest for happiness and finding a cheeseburger on the street or something like wild like that. I'm like, no, that's a dog. Who gets to determine it? Me. Why? Because I created the art. The same is with God as well. He is one that defines all of creation. And so Jesus has authority over all of creation. He defines it. And it also says in the text that he is the goal of all creation. All creation goal or our goal is to the praise and the honor and glory of Jesus. If you want to be a, a, a right human being, a rightly human being, or to a flourish as a human being, the greatest way to flourish as a, a human being is not just to be a good person. It's not just to do some good things. It's not just to do great works as we talked about earlier. No, to flourish as a human being is to praise and honor Jesus. That's what you were created for because all of, hum all of humanity and all of creation, its goal is to give honor and praise to Jesus. Let me keep going. Verse 17. It says, and he, and who's the he in the text? Okay. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's this idea that Jesus is holding all the chaos together, that he is the one, the glue of the universe. He's the one that keeps the universe from spiraling out of control. He's the one that keeps our hearts pumping. He is everything. Douglas Moo, uh, he's a commentator, writer, and theologian. He says, the universe owes its continuing coherence to Christ. What holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, Electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. Christ continually holds things together. I'll take it one step further. Without God's word, we would spiral into chaos. The world would just continue to run forward into darkness. There would, if God did not reveal himself to us, to humanity, there would be no hope for any of us. Nothing would be held together, nothing but moral chaos. Jesus is the one actively involved in holding all things together. So if Jesus can hold the universe together, if Jesus can hold humanity together, then, then why don't we dedicate every fiber of our being to him? If we can trust Jesus to make the sun rise and sunset and keep the planet spinning and all the things that he's doing, can we not trust him with our today? Can we not trust him with our relationships? Can we not trust him with our future? I, I believe we can. Should we not even 
care for his creation, if he sees fit to keep all this going, and this is a, you know, his creation, and we're called to steward it, shouldn't we take care of his creation? Shouldn't we uh, not only just, you know, we, we want to just consume it, but shouldn't we care for it as well? I believe so. Why? Because Jesus is the God of creation. Now, that's big. That can feel ethereal a little bit. Let's bring it down to the next level. Point number two, or layer number two, Jesus is the Lord of the church. This is good. Or let me say it another way. I think I've heard you say this before. We say it at Grace Point quite often. Jesus is the senior pastor here, and that's a good thing. Andrew's a great guy. He's a great guy, but Jesus is the senior pastor here. Look at verse 18. And he, who's the he here? Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the head of the body. What is the body? He defines it, the church. He is the beginning from the firstborn from the dead, or, that in everything he might be preeminent. And, and what does that word everything mean? It's, it is everything. So Jesus is the head of the church. Uh, this church and every church, every true church for all eternity, Jesus is the head of the church, meaning all true believers of all time. How or Why? Well, Jesus is the head of the church because he's the first among many to be raised from the dead. In the Old Testament, the terms beginning and firstborn appeared together to indicate a founding of new people, you know, God's new people. But in this text, you see those put together as a founder of a new humanity. His, how, does it, how does he do this? Because of the resurrection. The resurrection makes us a new people. He was the first one to not die again. He is the first fruits of those who are now bodily dead. When the resurrection happens, they will rise. When we die, we will rise. We will be a complete new people. Paul talks about this in 1 or 1 Corinthians 15. Why does he talk about this so much? Paul's saying that Christ's resurrection has accomplished something decisive and irrevocable in human history. It is a bell that cannot be unrung. C.S. Lewis said this, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that, cannot, that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Let me read that one more time. Gosh. Jesus, man, C.S. Lewis was great. Jesus, he has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has been opened. This is why Jesus is the head of the church. He led the way through the cross and the resurrection to create a new humanity. And that new humanity is the people of God, the church. That is you and I. Now think about this. This previous text said that uh, Jesus was the creator of creation initially. And now we see the new creation. He is the head of that. So he is the Lord of all. He has ownership over everything. Abraham Kuyper said it like this. No single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Meaning, Jesus wants everything. He, he, he wants us to hold nothing back. He can handle everything. I mean, that's why we, we do everything we can do to make every one of our churches about Jesus, to put Jesus first and in everything. We want Jesus to be the head of our church. We want Jesus to be the leaders of our church. We want Jesus to give us the vision for the church. We want Jesus to be the cause of our mission in church. We want Jesus to be the voice of our church. We want Jesus in everything. But let me be honest. 
it's getting increasingly hard to do this. I don't know, it, it is in the States. Uh, we, we, we as humans, we, we ultimately, we want what we want. And we want churches to be about us. We want churches, especially in the States, we want churches to be about preferences. We want our churches to match our uh, politics. I don't know if you guys watch the news, but in the United States, it's all about politics. That is the national religion now, is politics. We want our churches to reflect that. We want churches to only soothe our pain, in which they can help us in our pain. We want churches uh, to only be an event, not, not a part of our lives. We want churches to match our ideologies. We want churches to be comfortable. And in most cases in the United States, when churches don't match what I want, then I'm gone. I read a, a, a poll, I read a statistic, um, and I've heard that 73% of statistics are all made up. Nonetheless, I read this poll, and it said 50% in, two, in 2020, COVID year, um, in 2020, that 50% of people in the U.S. who have moved from one church to another did so because they wanted one that aligned with their politics. And I don't know the, the movement rate of churches here in Ireland, but half of your church leaves because you don't um, candidate for their candidate. You don't push their candidate. What do, why? It's like we want a president to be the head, or we want an idea to be the head of our church, and we can't. Jesus is to be the head of our church. Um, here's an illustration that may fall completely apart, and I told myself I wasn't going to do it, but I'm going to try it anyway and see what happens. Uh, I've, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh, I've been married for 28 years, um, and there are, there are a few things, and some of you married people will get this, there's a few things about my marriage that uh, I might not like, right? There, there's things in marriage um, that are just not easy sometimes, or things about your marriage that you just don't like, right? Just a few things, right? Not a lot of things. Give me a nod if you've been married for a while. <laughs> some of you are like, some of you are like, I'm afraid to nod. <laughs> I will be in trouble. And so let's just put a percentage on it. Let's just say, for, and my wife's not here, so I can do all kinds of talking about this. Don't tell her. Um, but let's just say, for a statistics amount, I love 90% of my marriage, but there's 10% I just, that this just, I don't like so much. And if you knew my wife, she's a saint, a saint. But we're just a little bit different. There's a couple little nuances there. That, and she would probably say there's about 50% of me she doesn't like, but nonetheless. <laughs> Um, now, imagine if I were to say, well, there's other women out there, and these other women, uh, there may be things about them that I like more, and so I'm going to leave her and go find another woman because they fulfill the 10% that I don't like about this one. That's ludicrous, right? That'll get you murdered, right? <laughs> Straight up. But the idea is we do the same thing about churches. I don't like the, the politics of a church. I don't like the ideologies of the church. I don't like the music or the, the style of the church. This is what we, we just complain about everything about church. I don't like these things about church. And so there's 10%, 90% we agree with, great theology, great relationships, great mission, great communal living together. But there's this little thing over here that I don't like. We leave the 10% or the 90% to go pursue 10%, and we think that there's a perfect church out there. Listen, there's not. Andrew's your pastor. That should be your first clue. There's no perfect churches out there. None at all. And you're here too, so that's on you as well, and I am as well. And so that leaves us with, ah, all churches are imperfect. But the good news is we have the head of the church, Jesus, he's perfect. And we can trust him, and his word is for us, and we can follow him. Why? Because without him, churches, we will die. 
Or the worst thing about a church is a church will live without Jesus and they will bear no fruit. They can do nothing apart from him. So we want Jesus to be our head. It says right here in the text, he's the head of the church. That's good news for us. That should bring us lots of hope. When we look at churches, they're imperfect and all, but it should bring lots of hope. No, Jesus is the head. He's steering the ship. We're going to be okay. Number three, let me get one more. One more layer. Number three, Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Woohoo! This is really good. Verse 19. For in him, hey, who's the him right there? Okay. You guys getting tired of saying Jesus? No. <laughs> Miss Barbara will get after you if you do. <laughs> right? And you're my spirit animal. Thank you. <laughs> For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What's, what's all mean? Means all. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. To dwell. Now, Paul knew in Greek culture they really didn't prize the body that much. They preferred the spirit. They thought the body was just a vehicle that you run into the ground, but it's all, uh, it's all more the spirit, the soul, or whatever. Uh, and, and bodies, let's just be honest, bodies are a little bit irritating at times, aren't they? They leak. They hurt. <laughs> they embarrass us. You ever been in one of those situations where you're in a meeting with, with someone and the room gets really quiet and your stomach growls and everybody kind of looks at you like you did something? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? And you're like, you're like mm-hmm. they're embarrassing, right? Uh, but God created the body and, and, and it's good. And God created the body and thought it so good it was fit to take on a body himself. Not just to prove that bodies are good, but there was a greater purpose. And the text says he was pleased to take on a body. Pleased. Why? Because that's the vehicle in which he's going to rescue us in. Because human was fundamental, or being human was fundamental to uh, rescuing us. And that meant even living and dying for us, that was the point. It says in the text, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. That doesn't mean that Jesus was just some kind of guy walking around and God zapped him with powers. You've seen the movie Bruce Almighty, right? Not that. Not that at all. No, it means that Jesus is God. God in the flesh. It's not that God added something to Jesus. Paul's saying that Jesus has always been God. Fully man, fully God. This is huge. Why? The only one who can bring God and man together is the one who is both God and man. And who is both God and man? Jesus. And it says that basically we need to be saved. And he's the only one that could save us. We can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves by our good living. We can't save ourselves by our religion, by our works, by our spirituality, by helping little old ladies cross road and buy cookies from Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts. You guys have Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts here? Okay, I was like, that didn't make any sense. But anyway, it's only by Jesus. Look at verse 20. And through him, who's the him right there? That's right. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, there's all again, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. How can we, be, uh, how can we have peace with God? Is by what? The blood, that's it. Now, we see the, the words in here, reconcile and peace, that God's on this mission to reconcile and make peace with us, which begs the question, why do we need peace made with us? And here's the reason. Since Adam and Eve, humanity has been rebellious against God. Back turn, shaking the fist, middle finger, whatever, two fingers, whatever you do here, back towards God, rebelling against God. And there is nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves. And that is the point that Jesus would come and take on a body, fully God, fully man, and do it in our, on our behalf. Jesus is uniquely qualified to save sinners. No one else can do it. Why? Because Jesus is fully God. He has the power to take the initiative to, to bring us back to himself. He is the one that can forgive us because he is the one who's been sinned against. 
Jesus became fully man. He knows what it's like to be one of us, yet he had no sin whatsoever. He lived perfectly in our place. He followed the, follow, the Father's will completely and holistically. So he's fully God and fully man. So the one who is fully God and fully man is able to bring both sides together and reconcile God and man. We need to get a fuller picture of this. And so, so far in our text, all we've been doing is talking about Jesus, which is great. So let's allow the text to speak about us. What does it say about you and I? It's going to be cupcakes and rainbows. Here we go. Verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Great stuff, right? But the good news is, if you're in Christ, it's past tense. Do you see that? You were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Now, if you're in Christ, you know this is who I used to be. I, I met Jesus at the age of 23, wasn't raised in a Christian home or uh, any church or anything like that. And if I were to describe my life from birth to age 23, I would describe it as alienated, hostile mind, doing evil deeds. Now, this morning, honestly, if you are not in Christ, if you have not trusted Christ, if he has not saved you, this is a description of your current situation, your current status. And one of the big things in, in this uh, little, little three-part right here of alienated, hostile mind, and doing evil deeds that really jump out to me, and I assume that would jump out of the recipients of this letter would be the word alienated. You don't belong. And I think that the Gentiles, the Greek people there, would understand what it meant to not belong. They would feel like that God is distant every time they would look at the temple. When they would see the temple, it would communicate God is present there and you don't belong there. You're not Jewish. You can't go there. As a matter of fact, for some of us, when we see church buildings, we just think to ourselves, I don't belong there. There are holy people there. That's where God is supposed to be and I don't belong. I remember feeling that feeling for a long time as a young man. I don't belong there. I mean, imagine what they would see. They see the big, beautiful temple there and it had different like courts and gates and the Gentiles were not allowed in at all. Now, uh, men and women were allowed in. Some could go only so far. Then the priest could go only so far. Then you had the Holy of Holies in which the high priest would go and offer sacrifice once a year. But when, when, a, when a Gentile, when a Greek would see that, it was like, hey, that's, God is not for me. I, I can't can't belong. They would see that externally just by looking at, at the temple, but I can only imagine in their hearts, it internally would be like, well, I, I, I can't. I can't be a part of any of that. But Jesus, look at verse 22. He, who's the he right there? Okay. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Do you see the, the, uh, him comparing what we used to be to what we are now? We used to be alienated, now we are holy. Christian, you are holy. You're like, I don't feel holy, but God sees you as holy because of the holiness of Christ. Isn't that great news? You were hostile in mind, but now it says you're blameless. Blame no longer sticks to you because of Jesus. It says you were doing evil deeds, but now it says you're above reproach before him. How is this? Because Jesus has broken down the walls that divide. Jesus is now the new temple in which we worship. Jesus, he's the high priest offering the sacrifice. And Jesus, he was even the spotless lamb of the sacrifice. We can be reconciled through Jesus. Why? Jesus is the savior of sinners. 
For some of you, I know you're guests today, and like, hey, the, the church thing is, is not my thing. Jesus, God, Bible, and just all, you know, that's not really my thing. I'm here to celebrate or here because someone brought me here or promised me a, a, a proper lunch afterwards or something like that. Um, listen, you can be reconciled to God. In your mind, you probably thought, well, I, I really don't want to clean up some habits, and I really don't want to get religious, and I really don't want to be extreme about it, and I really don't. No, 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 no. It's not about you. Did you hear how many times we say he and him in our text today? Who, who did all the work on your behalf? So all you do is trust him and his work, and you can be rescued. You can, you, you can have a relationship. You can be saved. You can have hope. It is a despairing world out there, and there's a despairing world in here, and Jesus is the only one who can bring true and lasting hope. Uh, Ernest Hemingway he, uh, he had these short stories, and one of his short stories was called The Capital of the World. And this story was written in Madrid, and at the time in Madrid, uh, the name Paco was the most uh, you know, named child, or you know, people's names were Paco, it was like the most popular name. And there was this old man, he was a dad, and his son's name was Paco, and they had some sort of falling out. We didn't, the story doesn't tell us what kind of falling out they had, if you know, the son did something wrong or said something wrong. They had a big argument, big fight or anything like that. And so they've been separated and estranged uh, for a good while. And the father got to this point where he wanted to be reconciled to his son, Paco. And so he goes to the newspaper. You guys don't know what a newspaper is, right? Are those the thing over here? We barely have them in the States anymore. But anyway, it's called a newspaper. It's the pre-analog internet where you got your news a day late, nonetheless. Uh, and so he put an ad in the personal section of the newspaper, and it read this. Paco, meet me in the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Three simple sentences. The next Tuesday at noon, the father went to the hotel and noticed police cars and a big ruckus going on around the hotel. Over 800 Pacos showed up just to be reconciled to their father. They wanted to be reconciled. They just needed a pathway. That's what Jesus is offering, a pathway. You can be reconciled. He is the only one that can do it. You can't do it on your own, and that's really good news. He's the one that's done it for you. If you would like to know more about following Jesus, you'd say, today, I, I want to talk to someone. I want to pray with someone. I want to trust Jesus. I want, I want to know what it means to trust Jesus. Please see Andrew or myself or anyone that was up here on this platform. We'd love, love to help you with that. Let me, let me finish out this text, and then I'll pray and We'll move on. Verse 23. Paul writes, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Now watch this. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, hear that part. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, we see that if right there, and sometimes we think, oh, it's conditional. Like, if you keep going. But it's better read as assuming, assuming you continue. See, we are not saved by continuing in our faith. No, no, no. We continue in our faith because we are saved. Con continue just means to continue, to persevere. One pastor said it like this. Their continuing in the faith shows how real that faith is. If it is true that the saints will persevere to the end, then it is equally true that the saints must persevere to the end. There is one that holds you. As a follower of Jesus, sometimes we think, I'm, I'm holding on to Jesus as much as I can. Listen, let go. 
You're not saved by the power of your grip. You're saved by the power of his grip. And I believe it's in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I hold you. No one snatches you out of my hand or out of the Father's hand. And then he says, I hold you as well. So the Father and Son are both holding you. Trust that today. Don't shift. I said at the beginning, Jesus is first in everything. And I'm going to put on the screen for you um, the same statement without Jesus in there. Because there are times in our life we shift. Shift happens. And so um, my question is, sorry, my question is, where have you seen the shift? What would be in that blank? That blank is first in everything. It could be great things. It could be your career, education. It could be your boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse. It could be your children. It could be your you know, financial goals. They're all fine things just not enough. They can't hold the universal and global statements that Jesus did. They just, they can't do it. Jesus, he is the God of creation. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the savior of sinners. He is the only one who can promise and deliver. All others just exaggerate. Here's what I want to do for you. I want to pray, and we'll take just a moment. I want to be silent and, and perhaps through God's word and by his spirit, he's speaking something into your life. Can we just pause for a minute in silence? Just ask God, what, what do I need to hear of this? Or what are you doing in me or to me or through me? Or what do you, what do you want me to hear? Let's trust the spirit to lead us in that. And then I'll pray and then hand it over. Lord, would you meet us in silence now? God, we thank you for your word. Without it, we are lost. Without it, we have nothing. Holy Spirit, may you, may you work in us. Perhaps today, you would take someone from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, trust you. T today you hear the cries of our heart and the idolatry of our heart at times. Convict us where we need conviction. Remind us of the sweet refreshment, as your word says, of repentance to turn away and to trust again. Holy Spirit, comfort us where, where we're just really struggling and suffering and there's, there's a lot of pain, pain for even following you and suffering in your name. Give us great comfort. Remind us that you are with us. You are with us. You're with us. God, I pray that you would just bless this church. I, I, I pray that no one could help from just speaking of the good news of Jesus over and over. I pray that 
the disciples would grow and disciples would make disciples that would make disciples. And from that, just naturally, churches will be born to the praise of your glory and for the good of the people. God, would you unite this church together, just brothers and sisters, to be truly family together? Would you shut the mouth of the enemy, make him ashamed of his work? And Jesus, may all this be done for your glory, your glory alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.